thanksgiving for your rich mercy and grace to us. Lord, we acknowledge we do not deserve any grace or mercy from you because we've sinned against you. We thank you for the redeeming work of your Son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross and rose again, that we may have eternal life. We thank you for the care and provision you show to us daily, for the simple things of everyday life, the blessings we enjoy, and the promises you show us in your word. Lord, we acknowledge that we don't deserve any of this. Lord, we ask you would forgive us of our unbelief. As we look about the world, we see unrest in the Middle East, the bickering of our politicians, moral decay in our world, a general lack of thought of you. Lord, we confess that we were in despair. We ask you would forgive us for not trusting you. You are a sovereign God. Nothing happens outside of your control. We thank you for your Holy Spirit's work in our lives to draw us closer to you and ask that your divine spirit would open our minds that we may comprehend the message of your gospel and apply it daily to our lives. I pray that you would work a transformation in this country, O Lord, through your Holy Spirit. Touch individual hearts that there would be revival. I pray that you would give your people a joy and sureness about the word of God and the gospel of Christ so that we can boldly go and share Christ with all those that we meet. Lord, we ask you would be with our leaders of our nation, of our state, and here locally, Lord. You have appointed them to their position. We ask that you would open their hearts to seek your will. Be with our brothers and sisters throughout the world who are standing true to your name. Thank you for protecting and guiding our missionaries. We ask that you would bless them and, Lord, refresh them. Keep them safe. Nurture their work. We pray for those in our body that are ill, those that are struggling financially and emotionally, Lord. Put your healing hand on them. Let them know the peace that comes from you. We give you thanks also for those caregivers. Lord, give them strength and mercy to deal with the daily challenges they face. I pray that you would continue to bless Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church. Lord, help us to continue to be faithful to your word, to proclaim it. Now more than ever, Lord, your church needs to stand firm. We pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on this body of believers in a very real way. Lift us up. Let us be a witness to you. Lord, I pray for Stephen as he brings your message. Pray your Holy Spirit would work through him and in our hearts so that we could hear and comprehend, Lord, and most importantly, be doers of your word. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, to whom, with you and the Holy Spirit, be all honor and glory, now and forever. Amen. Stephen, please come bring us the word.
Indeed, it's a pleasure to be with you this morning. You've read my biography, you've been introduced. I want to tell you a little bit. If you're like most people in the PCA, you don't know what Christian education and publications is. Now, some of you might, but I look at your, the front of your bulletin and it says, Making Disciples That Make a Difference. The ministry of Christian education and publications is about discipleship ministry in the PCA. We're one of the four original committees that was formed in 1973 to connect the different churches in the denomination, particularly in the area of discipleship ministry. So our job is to connect people with people and people with resources to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. Your church has been very faithful to support us as a denominational committee. Thank you very much for that. Because our responsibility is quite broad. We have responsibility to help discipleship ministry from children, youth, men's ministry, women's ministry, seniors' ministry, and also leadership development in our denomination. I cherish your prayers, and we do thank you for your support. If you want to find out more, you can look at our website, pcacep.org. I won't go into any more detail. I invite you to go there. I want you now to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, we'll be looking at a parable, but we're going to take the text a little bit further than most people do. We're going to go down to verse 23 in Luke chapter 12. This week I was discussing a man, we were talking about parenting, and we talked about sibling rivalry. All families have it, right? It goes from the, stop touching me, to the, mom and dad like me better than you. We talk about it with kids, but it's not just with kids. Adults do it too. In fact, some of you may be dealing with the pain of rivalry with a brother or a sister. This text that we have this morning shows an adult. Jesus had been teaching on God's provision. And then this man speaks up in the crowd, presumably a little brother, and makes a request. Follow along with me. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, 
whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Let's pause again and pray. (coughs) Lord, open our eyes that we may see the wonderful things you have for us in your word. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God. For you are our strength, you are our redeemer. We ask in Jesus' name. an article in foxbusinessnews.com February of this year. Looked for it as I was looking at the news this past week about all the bickering going on in Washington. And this article back in February of this year said this, the entitlements are now two-thirds of the federal budget. Fifty percent of U.S. households get government handouts. Now, when I say that in most PCA churches, there begins grumbling going on, if not verbally, at least in your own mind. But this article went on and said this, so many of us think that others are the problem. But the reality is the U.S. entitlement culture is pervasive from the top all the way down, from government leaders to chief executive officers, to just the man on the street. We look at others and we think others have more than we do or others have something that we don't. And we think in our minds, I deserve more. I need to get my piece of the pie. And then we listen to our marketing. In our, every time you watch TV or listen to the radio, it's you deserve more. And what happens is, What develops in our culture is a jealousy, a bitterness, a resentfulness, and what we have is a culture at war where discontent prevails. That article dealt with this. But the text we have before us shows that that situation is nothing new. Here was Jesus teaching crowds, and, and earlier in the text it talks about The crowd was thousands of people. And here's this man who brings a family squabble. And Jesus refuses to join in. But rather, Jesus addresses a deeper issue with a warning and then also a parable. Where he says, beware this hunger that affects all of us. This hunger for more. Because mankind, we are prone to pursue vain things. And the world offers so many options. But the better alternative lies with God. And what Jesus is doing through this text is trying to recalibrate our hearts to God. That better alternative where we put aside what the world offers because self-centeredness, when our self is at the center, it's all vanity. And so this text, God is calling us to embrace the treasure of a God center life. Now, 
Now, the call to live with God at the center is due to a number of things. One, it's our own fallen condition. Being sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. But then there's also this idea of our the symptoms of worldliness that creep into our lives. Sometimes we're blind to them. But mostly, a call to live with a God-centered life is because of the great alternative, the great opportunity that God offers to us in Christ. As you come to this text, the first thing you need to do is look at who is the audience. Now, for many years, I looked at this text and I thought, okay, this is a parable for rich people. (laughs) And I'm sure it applies there. In fact, some of the commentators sort of go that way. But actually, that's a very surface understanding of the text. You look more deeply. Look Look at the audience that Jesus is directing. You go in verse 14, who is he addressing? He addresses the man who speaks up out of the crowd. But then right on in verse 15, it says, he said to them, and he tells the parable to them, that's referencing the crowd. But then you go on in verse 22, who is he addressing? The disciples. You see what it's saying? The man speaking up out of the crowd, the crowd, and then also the disciples. Everyone is involved here. This text applies to all of us. You know, sometimes we think, well, this is just for rich people, and then we argue about who's rich, who's not. No, this is something for every man and woman who lives in the world today. Because of the bent of our fallen nature, we must embrace a God-centered life. Verse 13 This man wants his inheritance. Now, if you go in the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 21, there's the law about the inheritance. And Deuteronomy 21 says that the older brother is primary. The older brother gets a double portion. That's what the law says. Now, we don't know what the exact problem was with this man coming up. We assume he's a younger brother, and it could have been one... Maybe the older brother wasn't giving him what he was due. But probably more likely, here was this younger brother. He didn't like the fact that the older brother gets a double portion. And he says, Jesus changed things so that I get more. We don't know for sure, but it could have been one of those things. Whatever the case may be, he was not content. He wanted more. What does Jesus do in verse 14? He says he refuses to serve as judge here. Yet consider Jesus' response, where in effect he does render judgment on the man's situation, on the man's attitude, the man's heart. But then Jesus actually broadens the application. In effect, Jesus judges the man. Verse 15, he says, the man is covetous. The man is greedy. The Greek word there has this idea of a grasping and trying to bring it in. That's what this man was doing. Verse 21, the man was guilty of misplaced priorities. And that was the message of the parable. What's happening here is the man's life was being shaped by a self-centered materialism. And that's the tug of the fallen 
nature. Not one of us here is exempt. And embracing a God-centered life begins this way. You acknowledge the tug of the sinful nature towards that life where you are at the center and all revolves around you and you really say, I deserve more. It began in the Garden of Eden. Think about Adam. God had given him all of the garden, every tree, but just one. Do not eat of this tree. And what did Adam do? In effect, Adam said to himself, you deserve more. And he disobeyed God. We share that nature. Because we're prone to think, I deserve more in my relationships. I deserve more attention. I deserve more care. I deserve more in our relationships with the world around it. I deserve this. And when we view others in our culture with a sense of entitlement, we see it. We have to avoid thinking, oh, I'm above that. No. All of us struggle because it's part of our fallen nature. As you analyze Jesus' response, you see not only that that fallen nature is there, but it's also the symptoms of the vain pursuit of the world. Verse 13, we see this man's attempt. What's he trying to do? He's trying to get Jesus to be some leverage against his brother. And that's what worldliness does. Worldliness causes us to gather influential allies who will join with our cause and do what we want. In fact, we're trying to gather people that we can use to get what we want. This week I had a wonderful conversation with a man who's been a very successful businessman for his whole life. He's now in his late 60s, still working. He was telling me the story of his testimony. Became a Christian at age 26. Very popular, very good businessman, started two companies, multiple millions of dollars. And he was telling about all the people that he got to meet and know. And he said he was at a point in his life where he was going to this meeting and that meeting and people were inviting him to speak and he was winning national awards. And he was going to this meeting where he would meet these celebrities and have all of these invitations. And then about 12 years ago, he was at a meeting where many large celebrity sports figures were there. He knew them all and was introducing them to people. And But also he was having trouble sleeping. He told me that he remembered being on a plane. He said, and I was in first class. <laughs> and he said to himself, I hate this. Ask him, well, what was the this? <laughs> and he said it was that pursuit of influence, the pursuit of making the connections, the, the desire for more. And he realized this. He 
said, what I need to do, I need to decrease so that Christ would increase. In effect, he said, I need to pray the prayer of John the Baptist. Christ must increase. I must decrease. And he realized that that pursuit of influence was a symptom of worldliness that had creep into his life. That's one. You go to verse 15. And also in verse 23, there's another symptom. And that's a life that's defined by possessions. And here it is. It's where your identity is wrapped up in what you can control. Could be identity is wrapped up in your job. Or identity is wrapped up in what you have, whether it be your car or your house or your friends, the awards you have, the social status you enjoy, or maybe even the cause that you're a part of. You wear a certain color ribbon and everybody congratulates you for that. It could be anything like that. But your identity is wrapped up in that. Heard the testimony of a missionary. He was overseas. And he had been in one of those areas that was a high-risk area. He had been that way for 20 years. He had served in that environment where it was actually dangerous to tell people you were a Christian. It was dangerous to share the gospel. And he was there and served so many years. But then because of his experience, because of his age and what he could do, they asked him to come home so that he could train other missionaries going out. He said it was very hard. Because he said, whether we like it or not, in the Christian environment, there is actually a hierarchy. Missionaries serving overseas in a dangerous area, they're at the top. Then there are other missionaries. Then there are pastors, senior pastors. Then there are associate pastors. And then there are the rest of us. He went from being up at the top to being at the bottom. And he said, I realized that my identity was wrapped up in what I did. It's a symptom of worldliness that was shaping him. But then you go to verse 17 through 19, you have a me-centeredness. In the parable, maybe you caught it. There's, there's an emphasis on me. In fact, if you look in the original language, the word I and my are used 12 times. In fact, when the man in the parable addresses himself, he says, I say to my soul, soul, it's, it's a double right there, right next to each other, emphasizing this me-centeredness. It's in fact, he's saying this, I have a problem, I will fix it, and I will enjoy what I do. And you go on in verse 19, that enjoyment, how does he define enjoyment? It's a sensual pursuit of pleasure. Relax. Take it easy, some translations say. Eat, drink, be merry. That's our culture. It's a culture of leisure. I saw that flying last weekend. I pulled out the airline magazine. You ever read those? What does it say? Pursue the good life. What's the good life? Well, you go to this restaurant, you do this, you play at this golf course, and you do this tennis, and then relax, eat, drink, be merry.
have another symptom that many people miss. Verse 22. Anxiety about life. Even the basics of life. You're anxious about what's going on, what you have, what you don't have. It shows that the world is getting hooks in you. The most tragic symptom, perhaps the most common, is seen as you look at the parable, and that's a dullness to God and spiritual reality. The parable, it says, Jesus said, the land produced plenty. Now, according to a good Jewish person who was aware of the Old Testament, Psalm 104 is very clear. It is God who causes the growth of the crops. But in this man's mind, it just happened. Good luck. Wow, my my crops produce so wonderfully. Now I've got to deal with it. There's no acknowledgement of God, no gratitude, no concept of accountability or stewardship that God gave me these things for a purpose. And that's why God says to him, you fool. Now he's not making any judgment on his intellectual abilities. Rather, what the fool here is taken from the Hebrew wisdom literature where a fool is one who lives with no regard for God. That reality is only what I can see and touch and manage. But because of the way the worldliness gets involved with us, and all of us struggle with it, we must embrace a God-centered life. When we see the symptoms in our own lives, our tendency is to downplay it. Oh, I'm not as bad as this other person. Or we rationalize it. Oh, there's a good reason why I'm doing this. And I've worked hard all my life, so I can do all these things. Brothers and sisters, a God-centered life is honest. There's a frequent self-examination and a repentance saying, you know, I am just as capable of embracing the things that the world says are so important. And we look at our lives and say, where have the chains of the world bound me? And we go to the Lord and say, Lord, deliver me. There's an irony in this text. You know, that man came to Jesus wanting Jesus to improve his life. Jesus wanted to save. But the man wanted it on his own terms. In worldly terms. Jesus wanted him saved. It's because of the fullness of what God offers that we must embrace a God-centered life. Verse 14, Jesus says, I'm, he's more than just a problem solver. As you come to this part in Luke chapter 12, Jesus is on a journey. It began in Luke 9, verse 51, where Luke is very careful to tell us that at that point in his life, Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. And there was a purpose in setting his face towards Jerusalem, and it was that Jesus was going to Jerusalem to die. He was going to be the sacrifice. He was going to sacrifice himself for all of the pettiness for all the self-centeredness, for all the disregard for God, he was going to be the sacrifice. And on his trip, here was this man. Jesus.
Jesus was going to fulfill what Isaiah had prophesied, that by his wounds we are healed. Now don't miss the grace of this passage. In the warning of verse 15, in the rebuke of verse 20, Jesus is revealing the heart of God. God warns so that man may change. God in His mercy does not abandon us to the chains of worldliness. Now He gave Christ who shed His blood to cleanse us and to break those chains. So we must heed the warning. notice that the end of the parable is really uncertain. Now most of the people, as you read it, you assume, well, the rich man died, he died apart from God. But but look at the text. The text is really silent. Really, the message that's there in verse 20 is that businessman, the business decision that you thought was so great is really worth And then you have verse 21, where there's that challenge. Seek the riches of God. Never too late. There's also another missing piece. What did that man do in the crowd? Here again, the text is silent. Offer is this. Turn from yourself and turn towards God. So that leads us to the most relevant question. What are you going to do? What are you going to do as you look at a culture that so pursues, I want more, I deserve more? sisters, the parable calls us to put aside the worldliness. Put aside the the laying up treasure for myself and pursue the treasure of God. My first memory of David, a man I knew, was I found out he was a custodian. Now, David was an older man. He had an incredibly deep and rich voice. I remember thinking, poor guy, here he is cleaning rooms, cleaning bathrooms. I wonder what happened to him that brought him to this horrible place. Menial jobs. I met him when I was in seminary and he was piecing together seminary classes and working these menial jobs so that he could go through and get his Master of Divinity. And he did. I was surprised when later on I found out he actually had a law degree from Vanderbilt. And for 20 years, he had worked as a music copyright and contract lawyer in Nazareth. He knew a lot of people in Nashville music business. His wife, his 
three children. All of them had seminary degrees. He was a president of a mission agency. He did theological training in the former Soviet bloc. And while he was doing all that, he was still a church custodian. But he also looked for students. Students who was at seminary. And he wanted to pour his life into them and encourage them and to mentor them. And he would continue to teach overseas. David knew very well the glories of the world. He had seen it. He had tasted of the influence. He had tasted success. But he also knew the darkness of his own fallen nature. He saw the many ways that worldliness would ensnare him. And it continued to ensnare him. And that led him to be a man who pursued God at the center of his life, which meant that he was a man of humility and great repentance. He was a man who wanted each day to be a pursuit of Jesus, who had wiped away the stains and the vanity of his old life. He found out he had Parkinson's. Hindered his speech, hindered his motion, but he still served. In fact, he moved to Utah to work among the Mormons because they needed to know Jesus. September of this year, Jesus called David home to glory. Jesus called David home to enjoy fully the the riches, the divine riches that David had tasted on earth. Jesus wanted to call David home to say, Well done, my good and faithful servant. A former seminary student who had been mentored by David, summed up very well the impact of David's ministry and David's example on his life when he wrote this. He said, David taught me what it means to live out my theology and challenged my idols of comfort and prestige. Brothers and sisters, that's the essence of a life that is rich toward God. Oh, I hope that one day someone writes that about me. I hope the same for you. This text is calling us to have a God-centered life. The fallen world eagerly pursues vanity, and we are so easily wrapped up in it. But Christ offers us more. He offers us freedom. He died for our freedom. In the light of what Jesus has done, oh, let us embrace the treasure that God gives to us in Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you that you do not abandon us to our own sin. You do not abandon us to worldliness or brokenness. You gave us Jesus. Earlier we sang, Lord, change my heart. Lord, turn our hearts away from ourselves. And turn them to Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Let's stand and receive the blessing of God. Receive this blessing. Now may the God of peace, 
who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And God's people said,